Welcome to the first podcast of Compass Church of Monterey County. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll go to our website, compasschurchmc.org, and listen to all the fantastic worship music we offer at our three locations. We're open for live worship, and believe me, it makes all the difference in how your week goes. Worship at Compass is so uplifting and encouraging, so I hope you come this Sunday. Dr. Mike's first message on our podcast is one in which he describes how he and his wife Susie survived the suicide of their only son. This is such a vulnerable but practical series. Sooner or later, everyone suffers from grief, whether it's from the loss of a loved one, a relationship, or a dream. But maybe the most difficult kind of grief is losing a child. Their son developed paranoia schizophrenia in college, and for 10 years he struggled against that darkness until finally, the only way he can silence the horrible voices in his head was to take his own life. He hung himself. It was devastating to Dr. Mike and Susie. This message is entitled, Confessions of a Grieving Father. I promise you, you don't often hear sermons like this that are so helpful in facing life's trials. Here's Dr. Mike. It's often said that there are only two things for sure in life, and that's death and taxes. But of course, we know that is not true. Uh, There are people who actually avoid paying taxes. But there's no one who avoids losses in life, like a financial loss or health problems, or a divorce that you did not want, but your spouse did not want you anymore, or the death of a loved one. You know, I just wonder, what are the losses that you have suffered? This morning, I'm beginning this new series called Rising from the Ashes, because Along the way, I've had some big losses in life, but none to compare to our son becoming mentally ill and hanging himself. When that happened, that's when I began to say to you in sermons that life is what happens when you had other plans. I learned that sitting in the ashes of broken family dreams. Paranoia schizophrenia is a disease. That's why it's called mental illness. It is an illness. The person is a victim of the disease. Mental illness is not something that you give to yourself. It victimizes people. It's a disease that especially strikes young people, generally between the ages of 16 and 25 years old. And mostly men... And almost always extremely intelligent young people. Which means that it could happen to any family. A child or a grandchild becomes mentally ill with uh, paranoia schizophrenia. Could happen to any of us. Paranoia schizophrenia um, is not something that we should be embarrassed about as a family. I certainly was not. Why should I be embarrassed? Someone in your family develops cancer of the bone, you're not embarrassed about that. Someone develops cataracts, you're not embarrassed about that in your family. Why should I be embarrassed about a disease, a mental illness that struck one of my children? 
Paranoia schizophrenia is a civil war. It's a civil war inside a person's mind that hardly any of us can imagine. It is hell on earth where 24-7, with no relief ever, not even a minute of relief, voices in your head accuse you and mock you and laugh at you and threaten to kill you and tell you everyone around you wants to kill you and everyone around you is spying on you for the government. The life of a person with paranoia schizophrenia is one of utter fear every waking minute. Everyone is under suspicion, even those who were once closest to you. Looking back, the first signs of this disease came at the end of John's senior year at the University of Oakland. But we didn't catch the signs Because no one on either side of our family ever was mentally ill. One of us becoming mentally ill? Not to our family. That couldn't happen. But it did. Life is what happens when you have other plans. When John was a second lieutenant in the army... His commanding officer called us one day and he said that his own brother had paranoia schizophrenia and that John showed all the same symptoms. There is no cure for this disease. Sometimes medicine can stabilize a person in the disease, but of course, if you are paranoid, you think the medicine is poison and you won't take the medicine. John functioned as a second lieutenant somehow, but he kept to himself in the army because everyone was under suspicion. And when he was discharged, uh, we wanted to keep track of him and hopefully someday get him to a physician. So we persuaded him to move to Phoenix where both sides of our family live and to take care of his frail grandmother. And he did. But his disease, like a cancer, got worse and worse, and he became increasingly paranoid, even afraid of helicopters. He confided into Susie one day that that helicopter up there was tracking him. One Christmas, I gently asked John, do you think your brain may have turned against you and is playing tricks on you, John? You know, they call it paranoia schizophrenia. It's an illness, and medicine can help it and maybe give you back your old life. I'll never forget his reply. Quietly, he said, Dad, how would you feel if people thought that you were mentally ill? He eventually suspected even his grandmother of spying on him for the government, so he moved away from us all to Missouri. He didn't tell us where in Missouri he was going. He didn't want anybody to know that. And soon he stopped calling on Sundays, as he had always done, because, of course, he was convinced that his phone calls were bugged. 
He had not told anyone where he lived in Missouri, so I couldn't fly there to find him and to try to help him. And then one day we got a call from his landlord saying that his rent was two months past due. And oh, by the way, John hasn't been seen for two months. So I flew back to Missouri to try to find him. What often happens with mentally ill people is they just wander off and become a street person. When I got there and walked into his apartment, everything was in place as if he had just walked out the door, which he had done. Food was on the counter, food rotting in the refrigerator, and plates and utensils on his dining room table. He had just walked out. I met with a police detective and filed a missing persons report and hoped that John would one day show up. And then I flew home. I paid his rent, trying to keep the apartment available for him if he did show up. And I flew home and prayed with Susie. And then one day as the sun was setting in September of 2004, I was in my home library working. It's about a seven o'clock in the evening. And my private phone rang. It was a detective. And he said, Mr. Ladger, I'm sorry to say John is dead. Children found his decayed body in the woods near his apartment. He hung himself. He's only a skeleton. All that is left is his wallet. I'm sorry. The hardest thing I've ever done in my life is walk 20 feet into the kitchen where Susie was fixing dinner and tell her John is dead. And she, of course, collapsed into my arms in convulsive sobbing. And we both just stood there and cried. That was September 12, 2004. It is the day our life turned to black ashes. I did the memorial service for John. I didn't want to trust that to anyone else. I wanted it to be the best it could be. But you know, parents are not supposed to bury their children, are they? It's supposed to be the other way around. But this is not the world that God originally created. There is death, which was never in the original creation. And there are all sorts of losses that were not part of God's creation. For months, I could not imagine Susie and I ever being happy again. Because our life had been amputated amputated, like a leg cut off. I was a walking coma, and it was simply because John is irreplaceable. Every person you love is irreplaceable. You lose money, you can replace it. Your car is totaled, you can go buy another one. But you lose a loved one, you can't go out and get another one. I can't go get another John. There'll never be another one like him. Eventually, we did rise from the ashes and find joy in living again. And we learned, and what we learned and what we did to do that, I want to share with you in this series. Because sooner or later, everyone here is going to have 
severe losses if you haven't already. Loved ones are going to die. And then you will be in the ashes as I was. Some people never rise from the ashes. They spend the rest of their life sitting in the ashes of their dreams, pouting. And I can say that because I pouted at what, how unfair life was to me. Stuck in the past. And when a person stays stuck in the ashes, that's a tragedy. Along the way in this series, I'm going to try to answer the big questions that I faced and that every one of you will face at some time. Questions like, is suicide an unforgivable sin? A lot of people say it is. Next week, I'll tell you why it is not a sin. It's an important message. What do you do when you have regrets and guilt? I had regrets as a father. What do you do when you can't speak to the dead person? How do you handle that? That's in two weeks. Did my son lose his salvation? I'll talk about why we thought about that. Why not blame God and turn against God? He should have stopped this. Why did God let this happen? Your answers to those questions are going to be the difference between becoming bitter and angry and staying stuck in your ashes or rising from the ashes to joy again. Your answers really matter. And there's a lot of bad answers out there. So I should begin this morning with some confessions of a grieving father. And first I will confess, we have a baby here in the audience. We, we need to take that baby out. I will confess that sometimes I was angry at people who gave me pious platitudes about John, trying to stop my tears and my grief. Why do people do that? Well, it's because many people are very uncomfortable around grieving people. It scares them because they're afraid that what happened to you might happen to them. And they don't want to think about that. So they want to stop those tears so they can go on with their life and not fear the same thing happening to them. And therefore, super spiritual, pious platitudes have been developed to short circuit people's grief. Like, don't be sad. John is with the Lord in heaven. He's in a much better place. And I would say that's true but we're still back here on earth and we miss him. And I would ask, can you imagine how many plans have been permanently canceled when he went to have heaven and left us behind? How many family dreams have turned to ashes because he's in heaven? Our people would say, God needed him more in heaven than you did on earth. Ever heard that one? Or, God's timing is perfect. He numbers our days, and John's time was obviously up. This is the plan of God. And I would say, really? John took his own life. You want me to believe that God walked him out to that tree 
to hang himself in order to meet some celestial timetable? Or everything happens for a good reason. We can't always understand God's reasons, but it's all good. Ever heard that? I hear it all the time. It's all good. And my answer to that is, no, it isn't. Paranoia schizophrenia is not good. A baby with Down syndrome is not good. Cancer is not good. Essentially, you want me to believe God has some mysterious good reason for a disease and a hanging? That somehow that's all good? No. That's not good. And it's not God's plan. There's no good reason for a hanging One day, science will discover the cause of paranoia schizophrenia, and it will not be the hand and plan of God. To believe it's all good, and it, all that happens is for a good reason, is actually slander against the goodness and kindness of my God. It's slander. It turns something evil into something good. And I will never say evil is good. Never. Or that paranoia, schizophrenia, or suicide is somehow God's permissive goodwill. No. It's part of living in a fallen world where all kinds of things happen that make God grieve and that are not his plan and his will. I'm going to talk about that in a later sermon. Then often people would say to me, God never gives us more than we can handle. That is misquoting scripture. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, which says, when you are tempted, God will provide a way so you can endure it. That scripture is about... In Temptation. He'll provide a way out of temptation. It's not about grief or sorrow. It's making the Bible say something it never says. I refuse to allow people to make me feel guilty about grieving. Because you can't go around grief. You have to go through it. And I urge you to stand up to pious platitudes as well, because grief is healthy. Grief is actually a sign of how much we love a person. Grief is actually a love song about our love for the person. Eric Clapton's song, Tears in Heaven, that you just heard, won record of the year in 1993. But he did not write that to win awards. He wrote it as a love song to his four-year-old son, uh, Connor, who fell to his death out a window of a 53rd floor apartment in New York City. It was Clapton working through his grief, so he wrote a love song to Connor. And he sang in that song, And I know there will be no more tears in heaven. Clapton actually got that right. The only place in this universe where there are no tears is in heaven because Jesus is on the throne 
and only his will is done. The only place where everything that happens is all good is heaven because Jesus rules in heaven, not on earth. Not on earth, not everything is good. And that's why there are tears here. In our scripture reading from John 11, we found the show, uh, we hear the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Lazarus, whom Jesus loved deeply, was dead. And he'd been in the tomb four days. And he, he was decomposing and he stunk. And Jesus stands outside that tomb and weeps in grief. The Greek word that is used here is very rare in all of Greek literature. It's only used here of Jesus' weeping over Lazarus. And what it literally means is a, a waterfall of tears gushing out of the eyes or out of a rock. It's convulsive. Convulsive weeping. Shaking. Body shaking, weeping is the picture of Jesus before that tomb. I grew up in a farming family and I was taught that real men don't cry. And so I never, ever cried growing up. Then I became a Christian and I read this in John 11, Jesus wept. And I thought to myself, Jesus is a big, big man. He's not, you know, that kind of glassy-eyed guy you see in Hollywood films who looks like he's been smoking too much grass, you know, walking. <laughs> no, he's a big, big man, and he shows nothing but courage and strength everywhere he goes. And I said to myself, if Jesus can weep at the death of a friend, then I certainly can weep at the death of my son. Real men do cry because Jesus wept. It turns out that science has discovered that tears are actually healing and detox our body. On average, we blink every two to 10 seconds. And with every blink, our tear ducts secrete moisture that lubricates our eyes and removes irritants. There's actually a disease where your tear ducts aren't working and not lubricating your eye and you get dry eyes. You can go blind from that. Your tear ducts keep you seen. But there's a doctor, uh, a biochemist, Dr. William Frey, who has studied tears for 20 years. And he discovered that emotional tears are different from the lubricating tears. They contain toxins and stress hormones that are excreted by our body through our tear ducts in great stress or weeping. So our tears actually detox us from poisons in our body. And so it becomes actually unhealthy not to cry. You're meant to cry. People sometimes ask, in a tragedy like John's mental illness are the, and his suicide, are the birth of a Down syndrome baby, where is God? And they shake their fist at God, the heavens. Where is God? I never shook my fist at God. I never blamed God. 
And the reason is at the core of Christianity is the claim that Jesus is fully God and therefore God is Jesus. He is fully God and therefore God is Jesus. Jesus is God and God is Jesus is what Jesus said. In other words, Jesus' core claim is that he came to give the right name to God and to show us what God is like because God is Jesus and Jesus is God. And that's just huge. It's the answer to where is God in these tragedies. He's standing at the grave of Lazarus, weeping alongside of Mary and Martha. Where is God at the birth of a baby with Down syndrome? He's standing by the crib, weeping with the mother and father. And where is God the night we got the news? He was in the kitchen, weeping with Susie and me. God weeps. He is not indifferent. He weeps with us. I think many overlook the fact that Jesus wept outside the tomb, even though he knew that in two minutes he would raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, a thinking person ought to ask, why does Jesus weep when he knows he's going to raise him from the dead? He ought to be chuckling, not weeping. He weeps because death robs people of so much. It robs people of what could have been that God wanted to be. It turns to ashes so much in a family. That's why even though I rejoice that John is in heaven, I still wept because he was in heaven and that turned so many plans that we had together as a family, turned them into ashes. They were these John dying was a permanent loss to us. And that's why pious platitudes are really very insensitive. When grief is freshest, I say to all of us, it is best to keep our words to a minimum. It is better to be quiet. Simply touch and hug the person. Don't give them pious platitudes to try to short circuit their grief. For months, I could not look at John's photos. And so I took them all down in our home and I put them in a drawer. It was just too much. But I gradually rose from the ashes and began to live again and find joy. And the evidence is that for a number of years now, I've had John's picture in his football uniform, Salinas High, up on my working table where we do all of our planning in the church. You know, he was six foot four and weighed 230 pounds, all muscle. His bear hugs were bone crushing and we missed them. And I have his trophy up on my desk too because I've risen from the ashes. The trophy that calls him his award for being defensive lineman of the year in 1991. I have risen from the ashes. Because I can look at these things now and remember the good things. Secondly, I must confess that I fell into deep depression because I envied you. The Bible names envy as one of the seven deadly sins. 
It is a deadly sin because it is a joy killer. Envy is the only sin anyone ever commits that does not have one second of joy to it. Not one second. It's a joy killer. Envy is actually a form of anger. It's anger at another person's blessings that you do not have. Envy is an angry unthankfulness that blinds us to all the good things still in our life. I know that because I envied for a long time and I was angry. For example, nothing depreciates your new car faster than your neighbor buying a nicer car. (laughs) Envying their car turns your car into a piece of junk. Friends of mine would talk about their son's wedding coming or some trip they were going to take together. And I would have a silent scream inside of me. I was envying that they were able to do what I had planned to do with my own son, but he's not here anymore. I was never angry at God. I was angry at life. For days and days, I would marinate in the thought, this just isn't fair. We don't deserve this. Notice that verse 38 says this about Jesus. Jesus deeply moved. The Greek word means snorting with anger, came to the tomb. Deeply moved. That's such a limp translation. It really describes a bull looking at a red cloth, pawing the dirt, snorting with anger, ready to charge at it. The picture that the Bible's drawing here is that as he walked up to Lazarus' tomb, Jesus is absolutely furious at what death has done to the family's plans and dreams. Why? Because death meant permanent irreplaceable losses. Permanent. No more birthday parties or evenings enjoying each other. His death turned so much into permanent losses for Mary and Martha. And that's what hit Susie and me, the permanence of our losses. There would never be another Father's or Mother's Day card from him. There'd never be another fun night playing cards together, never another hunting trip. And there'd never be grandchildren from him as Jenny has given us with Tegan. Permanent losses. Permanent became such a cruel word to me. It's a cruel word. Sometimes I see parents yelling at a child on a ball field or in a store, and I think, oh, if you only knew what it'd be like to permanently lose that child that you're yelling at. I don't think you'd be yelling if you realize that. Permanent losses. A divorce from someone you truly love, but no longer loved you. A miscarriage, the death of a spouse. Permanent losses, for not careful, make us envious and angry at what other people have we do not have. And of course, we'll never rise from the ashes as long as we're angry and envious, will we? Why do you think in the last 10 years since his death, 
You've heard me quote 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10 so much. We know sorrow, but our joy is inextinguishable. Why have I quoted that so much to you? Because in my grief, I did not have that kind of joy. And I knew I needed to learn how to have the joy that Paul had. And I was struggling to learn how to do that. I finally admitted that. And that's when I came up with this phrase that I've said to you many times. Pain is inevitable in life, but misery is only optional. I learned that in the ashes. Because one day it dawned upon me that if I am miserable, I did it to myself. Joy is a choice, but so is misery. And the proof of that is two people in the same situations with the same losses go different ways. One is, finds joy again, the other stays miserable for years. It's just a choice. And I finally decided I'm going to choose joy. I've suffered some permanent losses in life. But I'm so thankful that one day I discovered Paul's secret in Philippians 4, verse 8, which you've also heard me quote many times. Whatever is right, pure, lovely, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think on those things. And the lights turned on. Joy is not my circumstances, it's a focus. Yes, that loss is huge. I didn't deserve it. But then I finally realized I don't deserve all of my blessings either. I don't deserve that bad thing, but I don't deserve all the good things in my life either. Like my marriage, my wife, my beautiful daughter, Jenny, and her very good husband, Andrew, and Tegan. You know that she has a happy marriage. I'm so blessed by that. I don't deserve that. And I'm so grateful for you and this great church and this ministry that I enjoy so much and my good health and my friends and good food and roses. The list goes on and on. No, I did not deserve John's suicide, but neither do I deserve all these good things. That was a pivotal turning point in my mind. It stopped me from pouting. So one day I came to Susie and I said, until further notice, celebrate everything. Let's celebrate every night. Good that has happened during the day. And so every day I come home to her and I say things like, it's Monday, time to celebrate. It's Tuesday, time to celebrate. It's Wednesday, every day I come home, I actually come home and say that. What special food are we having? What special thing are we going to do? Let's celebrate until further notice. And that's my recommendation for you. Celebrate, focus, until further notice. You've been listening to Dr. Mike from Compass and Salinas and our newest location in Marina, 
which is just off Reservation Road by the Chevron station. The title of that message was Confessions of a Grieving Father. I hope you were encouraged by Dr. Mike's vulnerability. He often says, life is what happens when you had other plans. No one gets life just the way they want it. Everyone takes hits, including losing a loved one. So I hope his message today and this entire series builds you up and strengthens you. Sunday at Compass, Dr. Mike is beginning a brand new series on the book of Daniel. And nothing could be more relevant to living in America today than Daniel living in Babylon. America is actually the contemporary Babylon if you think about it. This series is about staying faithful in a culture that's growing darker and darker. It's also about the tremendous benefits of being a Christian. That's this Sunday at all three of our locations. Sure hope you come to live worship. We're practicing all safety protocols. And if you come to our 1500 seat worship center on South Main and Salinas, you'll see it's so vast and spacious that people are able to sit 10 feet or more away from others. So it's safe. Sure hope you come. We'd love to see you.